Good morning. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm the pastor here at Eastern Shore Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. You can learn more about our church by visiting our website, www.myesbc.net. Of course, if you would like to visit us on a Sunday morning, you'll see that we have life group classes or Sunday school classes that start at 9 a.m. And our service starts every Sunday at 1010 a.m. Come by and see us. God bless you. And I hope that you are motivated to look more like Jesus through today's podcast. It was a little more than 15 years ago, I was sitting in a dreaded eight o'clock class on the campus of, Kevin, you'll agree with me here, the most beautiful campus, college campus that, that you could ever imagine in Starkville, Mississippi, and yeah, amen, right? Yeah, that's right. Y'all thought I was going to say some other college. Um, I was sitting in class. It was a college algebra class. Now, don't judge me here, all you engineers and all you people with higher level math, but um, I was a political science history major. I just was taking the maths I had to take to, to get through school. But it was an eight o'clock class, and it was my second semester of college. I had breezed through the first semester. The first semester of college was so easy, it just... I mean, it was kind of a cakewalk, and so I walk into this 8 o'clock class, and I'll never forget the professor. Her name was Diane Daniels, and uh, she looked kind of like Jerry Seinfeld's mom from Seinfeld's uh, sitcom show. Actually, kind of. She looked just like her, and uh, she got up there, and she began to teach, and, and as she taught that first hour class on that Monday at 8 o'clock, the first, first day of the semester, I thought, this is going to be the easiest math class I've ever taken. I had all this stuff in high school multiple times, and so... After that first or maybe the second class, for the next several weeks, I slept in and didn't go to that 8 o'clock class. And I thought, well, <laughs> I've got the syllabus. I know when the test is, and this is going to be pretty easy. And so I took the first test and promptly made a 34, <laughs> like, like out of 100. It wasn't, it wasn't like a 40-point test or anything, which that would have been good, right? A 34 on the first test college algebra. I thought, okay, that's not a big deal. I'll just go to class now, and um, you know, if I'm at class, surely it won't be that big a deal. And then I began to re-examine the syllabus, and I saw we only had two more tests before the final, and those were the only grades. I thought, <laughs> I am in trouble. Now, luckily, luckily, my father was the only person that had access to my grades. Otherwise, I would not be standing before you today had my mother had access to my grades in 2003. Well, thankfully for me, I, uh, I was able to uh, kind of pull myself back up, and I had to make Kevin a 99 on the final to get a B in the class. It was a 100-question, multiple-choice test, Scantron. Now, I'm not very good at math, but I knew I had to get at least 99 questions right because it was a 100-question test. And I'm here to tell you, somehow, by the grace of God, I made 100 on that final. Luckily, she gave like 20 bonus points for some ridiculous something, and so I probably only really made like an 80. But it was 100 in the grade book, and I survived college algebra. But that 34 was a wake-up call. Has anybody ever had one of those where you think you got it all figured out, and then all of a sudden something hits, and you're like, oh, maybe I don't have it all together after all. Now, there's been a series of those since then in my life, but that's one that stands out because I was in cruise control. I was on autopilot. I thought I had college thing figured out. 
after I had, I had one semester, I had completely owned that first semester, I was good to go, and I thought I could just sail on through the rest of college and probably the rest of life. And then Dr. Daniels hit me with a 34 and woke me up. What we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, is a wake-up call, except rather than Dr. Daniels delivering it to some punk freshman uh, at Mississippi State, this is Jesus with a wake-up call for some people who really shouldn't have needed a wake-up call. And, and so our, kind of our big idea this morning is that Jesus provides an urgent warning to those who should have never needed it to begin with. Jesus provides this warning to a crowd that really shouldn't have ever needed this wake-up call to begin with. And if you pay attention for just the next few hours, then... Uh, You're awake. I had a student a second ago tell me, hey, can you keep it to 10 minutes? I'm really hungry. Um, so it'll be somewhere between 10 minutes and three hours. So buckle up. It'll be better than college algebra, though, I can assure you. All right. So Jesus is before these people who had all the answers. They knew what was going on. And yet they had kind of gone into autopilot, and Jesus is about to wake them up here. And so we're continuing Stuart's sermon through Luke, called According to Luke. And so we pick up here in the next portion of the text in verse 13 of chapter 10. And so we're going to read 13 through 16, and then I want us to look really at three things, three parts of this warning, really, okay, that Jesus gives to the first century, his first century followers, and then how we can apply it to us as 21st century followers. So verse 13, I'm reading now the English Standard Version. It should be on the screen for you. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and in Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and in ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Now you probably just heard that passage. You think there's no way he can preach three hours on that. <laughs> just watch. <laughs> Jesus issues this warning to these people who are gathered and really specifically to a few cities. But there were cities that had seen some incredible things, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But Jesus stops for a minute and gives these folks a little bit of a wake-up call. And church, I'm going to be honest with you, I think that we are in need of a wake-up call in 2019. I know that there are times in my life where I know I need Jesus to stop me and say, hey, wake up, dude. Get it together. You've, you've just been trying to cruise through life, but I need you to stop. And I need you to listen. And he starts it off. He says, woe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And then he gets on Capernaum. He says, you think you're going to be lifted up? <laughs> You'll be brought down to Hades. Guys, not good. You don't want to go to Hades. Not a good place. There's this wake-up call. And I want us to look at really three parts to it. The first is, the first truth, I guess, really from this wake-up call, if you're taking notes, is that the miraculous blessings of God do not always lead to authentic belief from those who witness it. Quite simply, if you're taking notes and you don't have an outline, blessings do not always equal belief. 
And we have a firsthand account of that here. We see these cities mentioned. And maybe you don't know much about Chorazin and you're like everyone else because there's very little that we know about Chorazin. This is the only time it's mentioned in scripture is in this account. But what we do know about Chorazin from archaeological studies is two things really. They grew grain. They were a great uh, city uh, exporter of grain. So they grew grain for themselves but then also shipped it across the Sea of Galilee to other cities, which we'll talk about in a second. But they were also a city that sat on top of a hill about two miles from Capernaum, and it overlooked the Sea of Galilee. By all accounts, it was a very beautiful place, sitting up on top of a hill, overlooking the landscape of the Sea of Galilee, situated just up the road from Capernaum. What we do know is that Jesus would have traveled back and forth through Chorazin as he was going to Bethsaida, as he was going to Capernaum, and no doubt Chorazin got to see some really cool stuff that Jesus did. Now, if we keep on going past Chorazin and we'll get to Bethsaida, we know a lot more about it. In fact, Bethsaida is mentioned several times in the New Testament. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 44, it says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city also of Andrew and Peter. And then John, in John's gospel account, in John 12, he mentions Bethsaida again. And there's an account there where, in fact, Philip is asked to go and to find Philip and Andrew. It says in verse 20 of John chapter 12, now among them uh, who went to worship at the feast were some of the Greeks. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew and Philip. Andrew and Philip um, and Peter were all from Bethsaida. Also, what we know in Luke chapter 9, verse 10, which we just talked about a few weeks ago, is that something really cool happened in Bethsaida. In, In verse 10, it says, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them in the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So we see him doing healing, but right after that, he's going to feed the 5,000. Jesus does miraculous works in Chorazin and in Bethsaida. In fact, not only does he heal people in Bethsaida, but this is where one of the greatest miracles that Jesus performs takes place, the feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus in this moment is speaking to people and to towns, communities, that have not only heard about him, but have witnessed him at the height of his miracles. And he stops them and says, whoa, you've seen a lot of stuff. Some of you who are even within earshot of me saying this right now were there when I fed the 5,000. Not only did you see it, but you ate some of the fish and you ate some of the bread. Some of you probably have relatives who have been healed by my miraculous powers that have been gifted to me by God the Father. You've seen it. You've heard it. You've been able to touch the the, the healed skin of the leper. And he stops these people, and these whole towns and communities, says, hang on just a second. Hang on just a second. You see, the problem with Bethsaida and Chorazin was that they had become fans of Jesus. 
Jesus had become a celebrity. Do you remember that story that takes place? It actually takes place in Capernaum, where there's this house, and the house is so full of people because Jesus is teaching and healing inside of it, and it's so full that there's this paralytic guy, and his friends have to bring him there to, to see Jesus, and they bring him there because they want Jesus to heal him. Do y'all remember this story? But it's so full, it's so packed that they can't get him in the house through the door. They can't get him through a window. So you remember what they have to do? They have to crawl up on the roof, and they have to rip open part of the roof and lower this paralyzed guy down. You remember that story? Do you know why all the people were gathered in the house? Not because they were followers of Jesus, but because they were fans of Jesus. They were there to see Jesus do something really cool. Because that's part of what Jesus did, right? Who in here would not want to see a guy turn a couple fish and a a loaf of bread into enough to feed 5,000 people? We would all sign up for that. If somebody told you, hey, the Jesus guy is in town, he's going to walk across the water. We'd all be there. And what's happened in Bethsaida and what's happened in Chorazin and what's happened in Capernaum is that there's a bunch of people that are there to see Jesus do the next cool thing and to be able to tell their friends, you know, I was there. <laughs> I was there at the feeding of the 5,000. Anybody know people like that? Like, I was on the state championship team in 87. Now, that's funny. I got an 87 yearbook here. Let's, uh, <laughs> I wasn't there for picture day. <laughs> All right, okay. Nobody's ever there for picture day. But that's, that's what we have here. It's a, hey, look what I, I saw Jesus, and I saw him heal a guy. You'll never believe it. There was this Lazarus dude. He was dead. No, I'm telling you, he was so dead that he smelled bad. And I saw Jesus, Jesus healed him. No, he didn't. Yeah, he, he did. I was there. I'm telling you, I, was, I, I promise I was there. But what we see is that the blessings that are taking place in the lives of these people and in these towns don't always necessarily lead to belief in the one performing the blessings or the miracles. You say, that doesn't make any sense, Josh. How could that be? Well, we see it in our lives every day. This room was packed last week celebrating a risen Savior. And every person in here, if you had gone around the room and you said, do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? I believe it. Do you believe that Jesus is enough to sustain you and provide for you each and every day of your life? Are you trusting him daily? There's some times when, we believe in God raising Jesus from the dead, but we don't believe that God is sufficient to provide for us each and every day, and so we chase other things other places? That's what I'm talking about. We we like the blessings and we like the stuff and we, we believe in it, we believe in the stuff that, doesn't require anything of us. But then when it comes to us believing in things that require sacrifice of ourselves, that's a whole different story. It's easy for us to sit in here and, be- and say we believe that Jesus fed the 5,000, doesn't require anything of me. It's written down, he fed the 5,000, I'm good with it. God raised Jesus from the dead, absolutely I believe it. God's gonna provide for me in my marriage, in my job, for my- he's gonna take care of my children, all those things, and suddenly when, when things start to actually require something of us, some sacrifice, some trust, saying no to some things in this world, it becomes a different story, and that's what's happening here. That's why Jesus says, whoa, Chorazin. <laughs> Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
There's this book by this guy by the name of Kyle Eidelman. It's called Not a Fan. In fact, my wife taught through it on a Sunday night. It's an incredible book. In, in fact, I would, I would encourage absolutely every person in this room, regardless of age, to, to go on Amazon or wherever and, and look it up and buy it. Kyle Eidelman. In fact, you can go do it right. You got your smartphone right now. Go order it right now. I promise you, you're going to get more from Kyle Eidelman's book than you will from the youth guy in the next few minutes. I, I'm just being honest with you. But in the book, Kyle says that, that essentially what we have is a generation of, of fans of Jesus. We like the idea of Jesus. What's not to like? But when we have to move to the part where we become followers of Jesus, it gets a little tricky. When suddenly we're cool with Jesus as Savior, but Jesus as Lord, eh, that's going to require something of me. So what we have here in the first century is something that still applies to us in the 21st century. Jesus says, hey, Bethsaida, hey, Chorazin, just because I did some cool stuff where you live and just because you were there and saw it, doesn't necessarily mean that you believe in the one who's doing the stuff. See, church, we really like the stuff that Jesus brings with him. We really like that. Eternal life, sweet. Once saved, always saved. I can't do anything to mess it up. He's going to provide for me. He's going to take care of me. He's going to take care of my kids. He's going to bless the giver. It all sounds great. And then Jesus asks us to do something, to step out of our comfort zone, to sacrifice. Luke chapter 9, right before this, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That gets a little tricky. And that's what we have here. Blessing doesn't always lead to belief. The second thing that we see here is that expectations, okay, or his presence is going to increase expectation, or his revelation increases expectation, however you want to write it down. Where God has made his presence known, the level of expectation will be greater. Where God has made his presence known, the level of expectation will be greater. If you go back and, and look with me, in verses 13 and 14, it says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and in Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile towns that were mentioned repeatedly in the Old Testament. In fact, in Ezekiel 28, we have an account says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am God, I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of God, 
You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you say, I am God in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of the foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Tyree and Sidon were situated a little further away from Capernaum and from Bethsaida, right along the Sea of Galilee as well, but on the other side of the sea. And the the wheat that was grown in places like Bethsaida and in Chorazin and Capernaum would be shipped down to Tyre and Sidon. And they were so good at trade that essentially they were ripping off Capernaum and Bethsaida and they were getting all this wheat at a bargain price. And they enjoyed the luxury of their silver and gold, as it says in Ezekiel. And they, they had accumulated all this wealth, they were able to just buy this wheat at a a very small price from Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin. And so the people that were growing the wheat were suffering. In fact, there was famine that took place and mass poverty in these places. And yet Sidon and Tyre prospered off of the work of Capernaum, of Bethsaida and Chorazin. And God said, you've become a little too full of yourself. You've become proud. And so I'm going to send in a foreign army to destroy you. In fact, in Ezekiel, he says, well, then, will you then claim to be God as you're being destroyed by an army that the real God sent to destroy you? And see, that God punishes Tyre and Sidon for their pride and for their rejection of him. But then he says in Luke 10, he says, hey, Bethsaida, hey, Chorazin, hey, Capernaum, do you remember what I did to your neighbors, Sidon and Tyre? Do you remember how I destroyed them? It's going to be worse for you than it ever would have been for them. Why? Because you have witnessed me in the flesh. See, church, where God reveals his presence, the expectation is always going to be increased. God has revealed himself in an incredible way to the people of Capernaum and Bethsaida in a very similar way that he's revealed himself to you and to me. Maybe you've been sitting in a pew for 30 or 40 years, maybe five or 10 years, Sunday school class. You've had great Sunday school teachers. You sat under uh, great pastors. You've enjoyed the comforts of access to the gospel, to incredible teaching, Maybe you're like me in that way. I've benefited from so many people who were gifted and equipped by God to teach me. God has revealed his presence to me and to you. Church, when that happens, the level of expectation increases. We go back and use that math example from our opening. Anybody ever take trigonometry? Oh my goodness. Sine, cosine, and tangent. 
Church, I'm 35. I don't have a clue what a sine or a cosine or a tangent is or what you use it for. I don't. I know there's a little button on a calculator. I don't really know what I'm trying to figure out with that. I, don't, I, don't, I have no clue what I'm doing, right? All right, I know. We've got some, some people that could teach me. I appreciate that. Um, side note, I have no interest in learning what sine, cosine, and tangent means. So if I haven't used it at this point, I figure I'm probably okay, all right? But to all of you that do know and that teach it, great. Students, learn about sine, cosine, and tangent. It's important. You're going to use it all the time, all right? But if a, if a second grader walked into a, a trigonometry class, right, you wouldn't expect them to be able to understand those concepts, right? right they're, they're still trying to master addition and subtraction. Likewise, if you have a fourth-year engineering student or physics student or whatever at Auburn or wherever, whatever, is there, are there other schools? Uh, <laughs> Roll Tide. You're welcome, Russ. But you have a fourth-year student, they're in, in calculus four, they're taking some kind of thermodynamics class or something that, else that I don't understand. And, and they sit down with the professor and they start doing all of these crazy equations and everything that they're supposed to know. And the student looks back and says, hey, hey professor, could we maybe do some of that addition stuff? Kind of like that. Two, three numbers, something like that. You can even stack three or four numbers on top of each other. I'll add them together. Throw in some long division, really mix it up a little bit. Fractions. You understand that would be ridiculous, right? It would be ridiculous to ask a second grader to understand something that a college student is supposed to understand. It would be ridiculous to ask a college student to, to sit and continue to do the work of a second grader. Another example, I'm, I'm helping Coach uh, Smith, my son, his, his baseball team, seven- and eight-year-old baseball team. He's in first grade, okay? Not a very good baseball coach, uh, nor mathematician, all right? But like, there are concepts in playing sports and playing baseball that, that you can't really teach a first grader quite yet. There are things that are supposed to happen on a baseball field when, when you get a little bit older, that a first grader just can't understand. Because, I mean, we're still trying to make sure we get our glove down on the ground and we get the ball out of our glove and throw it to the correct base, right? Well, then we start saying, all right, well, if, if you got a runner on second and there's less than two outs and you're playing shortstop, what we're going to do is we're going to catch the ball, we're going to pump fake to first, hope the kid comes off second base, and then we're going to tag him out, and then we'll go to first base. Well, that's that's a lot for my seven-year-old to process. I don't know about yours. But then, if you have a major league baseball player that's letting ground balls go between his legs because he can't, he can't remember he's supposed to, to bend down and get his glove on the ground, there's a disconnect there too. And what Jesus says here is that you have been exposed to so much You've seen it. You've benefited from it. And so the expectation is going to be greater. And he goes so far as to say, hey, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, do you know that if I had done in their town what I've done in your town, Tyree and Sidon, even though they were unbelievers, they would have repented and put themselves in sackcloth and ashes even the pagans would have seen the majesty and wonder of God Almighty. 
and they would have turned from their wicked ways. But you, the problem with you, Bethsaida, the problem with you, Capernaum, the problem with you, Corazine, is you've, you've just enjoyed the blessing so much that you've, you've decided we're good. God's blessing us. Everything must be okay. And you've, you've just become a fan. So let's be careful. Because where my revelation is more, where my presence is more, the level of expectation is going to increase. He says, no, there's a reason that I came to you, to the Jew. And it wasn't so you could be enamored with me for a minute and move on to whatever the, the next new shiny thing was. We do that, right, in our lives. Think about it. Ladies, okay, specifically those of you in the dating world, right? Imagine you, you meet this guy, right? Oh, and he's fantastic. Ladies, he's a good-looking dude. I'm telling you, he's, he's nice. I, I, don't, I don't know what, who your generation's uh, go-to guy was. There's, there's a, a lady that I know in the church. She's a big Tom Selleck fan. I'm not going to mention her by name. But those, some of you ladies really like Tom Selleck, the mustache, the, the uh, Magnum P.I. days, okay? It's nice. Imagine whatever it is that you're into, and he looks like that. He's good looking. And you get to know him, you start dating, and he really takes an interest in you, right? He's thoughtful. He's a good communicator. He's romantic. He's all of the things you could have ever hoped for. But over time, you start to realize that eh, you don't really like him. What you like is that he likes you. I think if we're honest with ourselves, some of us have been there before. Like, there are people in our lives that we, eh, we could take or leave, but it's really good that they like us. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But some of us have been there. We like, that, we like to be liked, even if we don't necessarily like the person that's liking us. Or maybe you get a new job, right? New job, hey, the pay's great. The boss is good. You got new coworkers. They seem pretty cool too. You're learning new things, doing new stuff. The last job had gotten kind of stagnant. It was a little boring. And it's great. You're excited about it. Well, then a few months in, you're like, oh, maybe the pay's not so great because they keep adding some more requirements to you, some more duties. Eh, I don't know. Coworkers, eh, kind of getting on your nerves now a little bit. That boss, he's actually like telling you what to do. She's telling you what to do. It's getting old. As human beings, we, we like stuff in the beginning, but our attention spans are so, so short. Like, Jesus, we, we like you, we want you, we need you. But now that I got you, there's, there's some other stuff that seems pretty appealing. And Jesus says to Capernaum and to Bethsaida and to Chorazin that you can be amazed by Jesus without being changed by Jesus. You can be impressed by him without actually possessing him. You can know about him without ever really knowing him. You can support some issues that are Christian without being Christ-centered. I think, church, what we really see here is that you can use the name of Jesus without being surrendered to Jesus. Did you know that? It's easy to use the name of Jesus without being surrendered to Jesus. But what 
What Capernaum is going to find out here, what Bethsaida is going to find out, what Chorazin is going to find out, is that at some point, whether you want to or not, everyone will surrender to the name of Jesus. Paul writes about it in Philippians chapter 2. He says that God has so highly exalted Jesus that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus is Lord. He says, Capernaum, you think you're going to be exalted? You think you're going to be lifted up because I did some cool stuff in your town? He says, right now the way it's looking, you're more likely to be lowered down to Hades than to be exalted. Because you've enjoyed me as Messiah, but you haven't treasured me as Lord. Where God reveals his presence, the level of expectation increases. The third point, and then we'll close. Hearing the gospel will lead me to proclaiming the gospel. Hearing the gospel will lead me to proclaiming the gospel. We find ourselves at a little bit of a crossroads here. Go down to verse 16. Jesus says, the one who hears you hears me. Remember, he's, he sent out the 72. They haven't come back yet. That'll be next week. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. For those of us who have heard the gospel, for those of us who have heard the gospel, we have been mandated to proclaim the gospel. And don't get confused here. The Greek word here that, that we see with hearing it has a little more connotation to it than just some sound waves bouncing off our ears. What it really means is that we have not only heard it, but we've processed it and we've embraced it. See, here in this word picture, in order to hear the gospel, hear the message, we have to not only physically hear it, but we have to process it and understand it and then embrace it. So Jesus says, those who hear you proclaim the gospel are actually hearing me. That puts a little bit of responsibility on us, guys. He sent us out. Those who hear you actually hear Jesus. And the one who hears Jesus hears God the Father. You see, if, if we've actually heard, if we've received the gospel message, we're not just asked to, we are called to, commanded to, go and to proclaim the gospel. You see, it's easy to be a fan of all the Jesus stuff, all the stuff that comes with Jesus. It's a whole different story to embrace Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, and to go boldly and proclaim the message of Jesus, both in the way we live and in the things that we say. And that's what Jesus is calling Capernaum to. It's what he's calling Bethsaida to. It's what he's calling Chorazin to. It's what he's calling Daphne to. It's what he's calling us to, the, the 21st century church. To not just be hearers, but doers. That's somewhere else in Scripture, right? To hear the gospel and to go and to proclaim the gospel. For how will they know if they do not hear? Perhaps today you are here 
and you say, I don't understand anything you've just said because I don't know that I've ever actually heard the gospel. The message that Jesus sends out the 72 to tell is the message of the hope that's about to come in this story. You see, in chapter 9, Jesus, there's this, this really subtle thing that happens in chapter 9 where Luke says, and he set his face to Jerusalem. It's, it's so subtle. If you're just reading it, you'll, you'll never really catch it. He set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus is teaching. He's preaching. He's performing miraculous signs. But in Luke 9, we see him change his course of direction geographically and in terms of his purpose. See, in Luke 9, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem because he's going to perform his final miracle, really. So what's happening in Luke 10 is happening with Jesus on his way to go and to be crucified and subsequently resurrected for you and for me. And so imagine the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, is going to his ultimate death to die for you and for me and for all of mankind throughout all of eternity. And he comes upon these towns where he's literally handed some of these people bread that he's transformed out of nothingness or fish. Or he sees, I healed your grandmother. She hadn't walked in 60 years. I healed her last week. And you were there, you saw it, you bowed down, you rejoiced, and now your life says nothing of me. And he, he sees a family from Bethsaida. Your kid couldn't walk. Your dad couldn't see. You saw it all. You were there. And now I'll walk back through your town on the way to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And you would think I'd never been through here before. Woe to you, Corazine. Woe to you, Bethsaida. As I read that, I, I can't help but, woe to you, Josh. You've seen me. You've encountered me. And yet it doesn't really look like it. Jesus is going to leave here and continue to make his journey to Jerusalem where he is going to suffer an agonizing death. Yet he's going to be resurrected from that death, defeating sin and death on your behalf and on my behalf so that we can live in the freedom of eternity because it's already been won for us. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll close. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and part of that he says that we are the light of the world. A city on a hill. And he says that as believers, we are to illuminate the world and show them the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. 
A flashlight is an interesting thing, right? It, it shines light wherever you point it. And I know it's not perfectly dark in here, but you can see that there is clearly a light. The funny thing about a flashlight, though, is that wherever you point it is where you can actually see. And the flashlight, really, as you're using it, it if you notice, go home and use a flashlight in the dark, it follows where you look. Where you look, you naturally point the light because it's what you want to see. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, you are the light of the world. You are meant to illuminate the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. As I think about what it looks like practically for us to be the light of the world, I think a lot of times, right, we point our light at whatever seems cool at the time. Maybe it's a, a hot-button social or political issue, and that's got all our focus, and so we're pointing over here. Or maybe it's this new trend or phenomenon here. Or maybe we've got this new uh, self-help thing that we're doing over here. Or maybe we're struggling with something, and so we're, we're over here somewhere. We live in a dark, hurting world that's in desperate need for some light. And the truth of the matter is, where we point the light, the world follows. In Hebrews, right, the author of Hebrews says, so fix your eyes where? On Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the founder of our faith. So as Christ followers, I wonder what our world would begin to look like if we fixed our eyes on Jesus. Because the truth of the matter is where we fix our eyes, church, is where the light goes. Where our eyes are, so goes the light. And where the light goes, so goes the world. The question we have to ask ourselves this morning is where do I want to point people? If I want to point people to Jesus, then perhaps today it's time for us to begin to look in his direction. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you so much, God, for the message of hope that we find in Luke. God, it is, God, a condemnation, a challenge, a wake-up call for those first century towns. And God, hopefully a wake-up call for us this morning. Yet, God, there's hope in this challenge. This morning, God, we have the opportunity, God, to lay our lives down before you. God, may we may not be, may we not be guilty of the same things as Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum. God, would we commit ourselves as individual followers and as your church? to be faithful to point people in the direction of Jesus Christ. God, I know that in a room this size this morning, God, there are those who have never made a decision to follow you, to trust you. God, I pray this morning, God, that, God, the message of the hope found in the cross in an empty tomb, God, would be life-altering, that it would change someone's eternity. God, that maybe for the first time this morning, someone would say, 
I'm wandering around in the dark. I'm struggling. There's just stuff in my life that I just, it's too much for me to deal with. God, I pray today that you would move in that life. And that no matter where we are in our lives, God, right now, someone in this room would say, I I need your help. I can't figure this out by myself. I want to trust in you. If that's you this morning, in just a second, I'm going to invite you to come and and pray with me. Perhaps we have encountered Jesus and there was a time where we were desperately and deeply in love with him. But we become a little bit more fan of Jesus than follower. Maybe today in our pew, maybe down here at the altar with a staff member, we would just say, God, I just want to be a follower. I miss that. Maybe today you want to be a part of a church that's shining its light around the globe in Alaska, Vermont, Miami, France, Morocco, Spain, all around the globe. Come and join us today. Father, we pray that you would do miraculous things in our lives. And God, we wouldn't simply be receivers of a blessing, God, but we would be believers who are committed to following after you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Tony and the band is going to come and lead us. I invite you to come. You pray. You come and grab me. Talk. Let the Holy Spirit move in your life this morning. Thanks again for tuning in to today's podcast, and we hope to see you again on Sunday morning. Of course, you can also watch our services live on YouTube. Simply search Eastern Shore Baptist Church on YouTube, and at 10.05, our broadcast starts. We hope to see you soon. God bless you. And again, visit our website, www.myesbc.net. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.